Hey y'all, you're listening to In the Corner, Back by the Woodpile. Spun Counter Guy, thanks for stopping by. On this episode, I am back in Indianapolis for the Indie Record Bash, an event that was started by the now defunct International Association of Jazz Record Collectors. My grandson and I had a great time perusing through all the crates of records and books of sheet music, listening to a few talks, watching old films, cutting a rug to the live jam band, and of course, talking with all the folks that are passionate about jazz music artifacts. That said, I got to sit off in a corner of the hotel with Dave Greer, a man who has been coming to these get-togethers since the 1960s. We talk about all kinds of things in and around the world of jazz, especially his adventures in collecting. First of all, how did you end up a fan of jazz, or how did you discover it? Well, I think like most people, you pick stuff up when you're a kid. Uh And I was a kid when they were just starting the revival of old jazz, the Blue Waters Band out in California. And I'm from Dayton, Ohio, lived there all my life. Uh And uh, the old Record Changer magazine gave us kind of the second uh, traditional jazz band Accolade uh-huh. in its day in the early 1950s. Right. Uh, Gene Mayle had a group called the Dixieland Rhythm Kings. split in two and uh, Carl Halen came with the gin bottle of five plus two out of that band. So when I was a kid there were those bands in Dayton and I ran into a couple of old guys who were jazz record collectors. Tony Speranza and a guy named Hensel Heaton. Hensel Heaton lived over a bar in North Dayton in a room that consisted of a cot, a turntable, and thousands of 78 records. He was quite a character, and Tony was too. Uh, Tony was an original member of the IAJRC and a feisty Italian guy. (laughs) Grew up on the west side of Dayton, Ohio. Didn't have 50 cents to get his picture in the uh, Roosevelt High School yearbook. But he was a record collector, an avid record collector. Went out and did everything. So those two guys were kind of, got this poor little kid uh, interested in early jazz. And we had live jazz in Dayton, so it was a natural. So you started collecting even back then? Yeah, I was a kid in in, uh, high school. The IAJRC, how did you first encounter them? Uh, They came in, we we had a lot of guys in Ohio who were record collectors. They would get together on Sunday afternoons and 
play old records. It was before Brian Rust, so it was a guessing game of who's playing on that record and who's that on that horn and so forth. So we had those record sessions on an almost weekly basis on Sunday afternoons, it's one home or another. And uh, some of those guys were part of the original group of, I think, a dozen people that started the International Association of Jazz Record Collectors. And uh, it was uh, what was uh, totally a bunch of moly figs. <laughs> Did a lot of drinking, played all those old records, knew everything about everything, and attracted a whole host of people interested in jazz. I mean, when we would get together, uh, there was a guy named Carl Kenziora from New York who had, knew everything there was about all the studio bands in New York. He had a lot of test pressings from a lot of great records. About what year was this? This would be in the uh, fifth, let's see, the, that's probably by late 50s, early 60s. Uh, the, the meetings were great. They'd always bring in somebody that uh, was a figure from the, the jazz days and we'd chat with them and play old records. It was taboo in those days. Anything over 1930 was, you know, like a whole another planet. Yeah. Uh, that, that finally changed when guys got wise to Duke Ellington did keep going after 1927 right and uh, Benny Goodman and all the swing stuff so the, the the thing kind of broadened out as the years went by but originally it was that little cluster of people and there were guys who were like the old Cleveland Brown football fans they, those fans always had one guy that was their guy and they watched him every there was a guy there that was the, a collector of Jack Teagarden and that was everything Oh, if the street could talk, if the street could talk, married men would have to take their beds and walk, except one or two who never hit that booze, and the blind man on the corner who sings these Beale Street blues. Another one that was a collector of uh, Fats Waller, and that was everything. Oh, how I love you, honey hearts. My heart is singing like a thrush. Yes, I'm saving my dimes. I hear wedding chimes. My sweet, my lovely honey hush. Honey hush. Over the years, we got to meet and talk with a lot of the kind of giants of, of uh, early jazz. Uh, one of the most interesting nights, I think, was when we we rediscovered uh, Jabbo Smith. Brought him over. I think we were in Pittsburgh that year. Jabbo Smith was working as a janitor. He thought he, you know, he was a kid when he was playing all those Red Hot records and was Brunswick's challenge to Louis Armstrong. And, uh, he was so thrilled to think that people remembered him, thought and thought that he was a great musical genius. And it was it was this wonderful feeling of this guy that just kind of got taken out of the grave and brought back to life. I can remember we we stayed up all night. Uh, Mike Walbridge was playing a, a cornet instead of his tuba. Uh, we had a little trio with Jabbo Smith. We, we played, 
and we're having such a good time that we suddenly looked up and here all these people are up at the front counter of the hotel. They're all checking out. It's eight or nine o'clock in the morning. Oh. So we had that night with Jabbo Smith. He wasn't that hot anymore, but he was right. playing the blues, and it was just a great thing. There's something about old jazz players. They either end up a janitor or a school bus driver. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. They, the Lonnie Johnson, for example, when he died, he was working as as a janitor yeah. in a school, and and they, they said, "Did you know that that old guy that died?" Uh-huh. He was one of the great jazz guitarists of all time, recorded all these records with Eddie Lang and, and with Louis Armstrong and all this stuff. Uh-huh. So, you know, we didn't know he was a musician at all, but we did notice he was awful careful about his hands. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But another one that we had that was a, a wonderful night was uh, we resurrected Elmer Snowden. player he's the guy that gave Duke Ellington his first job and he made a a, a, one of those Vitaphone shorts called smash your baggage it was done in Grand Central Station in New York and they had to do it like at four or five in the morning before anything happened and it's just the wildest show he'd never seen that film until what 40 years later uh, one of the collectors had a copy of that film and he came in and watched it, and uh, it was, it's exciting to see, you know, people's memories come back to life for him. Right. So he had a lot of that stuff. So that eventually led to, there's the International, and then there's the Indiana, right? Duncan Sheet here in, in Indianapolis, what a beautiful man he was, and, and wonderful jazz photographs. Uh-huh. And I've got some of his photographs where he would do them a, a old photograph of Bessie Smith or something like that and then he'd do them as a, in blue uh-huh. or a red hot thing and uh, the Oliver band and all that stuff just a genius of that stuff and the world's nicest man he had something that I had a great envy and uh, you know loved to have gotten somebody else got away with it uh-huh. but he had a cigar box that had the autographs of everybody in the uh, Gold Kent band including Bix that some night when they were playing, he got all those autographs. I don't know where that ended up. You mentioned that the all these cats, they had a certain person that they collected you know they, they focused in on maybe one artist was there one that you gravitated to first or did you end up doing that or did you just collect all kinds of stuff I've al- always been nuts about King Oliver
partly music and it's partly just the, the sad, sad story of his life. I mean, it's it's a heartbreaking story. Well, can you give us a thumbnail sketch of his life for people who don't know? Yeah, I, in fact, I just did uh, a, a month ago a program on YSO, which is the radio station at Antioch College, mm -hmm. uh, where we did uh, an hour, I guess it's a two-hour thing, mm -hmm. where the band played some of the old Oliver tunes, and oh. we talked about King Oliver and what have you, because uh, it was the 100th anniversary of those 1923 records that were done in uh, Richmond, Indiana. So King Oliver, to me, was always a fascinating figure. The father figure for Louis Armstrong brings him up from New Orleans, teaches him some of the tricks. Louis had tricks that Oliver never dreamed of. And, uh, you know, Oliver disappeared into the shadows with his teeth pretty well gone and uh, ended up as a pool room attendant in Savannah, Georgia. Not enough money to get an overcoat to get back to New York. Beautiful stuff in three phases of his of his music, really. The Creole Jazz Band in 23 and uh, one of the classic jazz band. It's what Lou Waters modeled his band on when the revival of this stuff started. And then the Dixie Syncopators, hot band in the mid-20s. And then those wonderful New York records, some of which he's on and some of which he's not. But uh, they're all great tunes. Then he had a guy from Dayton when King Oliver was going downhill, he played once in, in Dayton in 1934. And there was a guy that I knew that was a piano player, worked in a liquor store in Dayton and played uh, piano by night, who as a kid had been in King Oliver's last band, where they had a creaking old bus that had flat tires every 30 miles or so. And the kids kind of made fun of the old man, but. Uh, he, he was on the road with King Oliver in, la in King Oliver's last ride, kind of. So he had all those little human touches and stuff. And of course, Dayton is just up the street from uh, where Dix and the gangs uh, started out in uh, Hamilton, Ohio. Gangster land. It was where the guys from Chicago used to go to get their guns turned into automatic weapons. And mm. They owned that uh, Hamilton County, or mm. Butler County it is, rather. Uh, the gangsters kind of owned that. It was a cooling off spot. So when you collected the King Oliver stuff, did you end up with everything he did? I ended up with everything on the Victor records and the Brunswick records. I ended up with some of the stuff on the early Jeanettes and Columbias and OK. Did you ever have the Zulu ball? No, that, that was... <laughs> <laughs> there was... ended up being two copies of it known, but uh, in fact... Uh, when they, they first discovered the guy who had a copy of the Zulu's Ball, uh -huh. it was a really terrible copy because uh -huh. they made these reissues of it on those pirate labels that they had in those days, and you had to pick it out through the scratches. I did have one fun thing about Oliver, though, that I, I just discovered. One of those tunes of, of 23, 
was a thing called, ain't, I ain't gonna tell nobody. there's no vocals on any of those Oliver records and uh, that tune has been redone by various bands and I, I've never heard a vocal on it but I discovered that it was written by Richard M. Jones who made a trio record of a tune that was on the label called Wonderful Dream and I listened to that record and I said wait a minute that's King Oliver's I Ain't Gonna Tell Nobody and it has lyrics on it. So uh, I, uh, I, we did it when they had that radio show. Played that old tune with the lyrics. Which so came that, first, the song with the lyrics or the they, recording? They, they, both, they both came out in 1923. Okay. So they're both 100 years old. Dream I had last night. I felt so fine. My wandering mind was a being paradise. I could dream forever. Tell me some of the links that you've gone to acquire some of the things that are in your collection. Well, uh, there's nothing in my collection anymore. It's in 12 different countries. Uh, I've got ten grandchildren, none of whom have any great interest in early jazz, and uh, they've got their own music. And right. uh, my wife uh, looked at me and said, "You know, you got all the 2,078 records. What are you going to do with them? Nobody, you, no, you don't know which ones are worth a dime and which ones are worth real big money." And I said, "Well, I guess uh, you're right, honey. We, we got to." We're going to die someday, and there's no sense in having them piled up here or give them to some place that's going to hold them for a year or two and then put them in a dumpster. Uh So they all got auctioned off, and uh, they're now in 12 different countries in the hands of people that love that old music, so it's a good thing. Now, are you allowed to go visit them? Uh, I I really don't know who owns any of them. (laughs) I do. Dave Bach up in... uh, Chicago uh-huh. ended up buying a lot of them, and then I became a great friend of his. I thought, damn, if I'd only known before I auctioned these things, I could have given them to you. But uh-huh. he doesn't need any more records. He's he's right. got two giant collections that he's just picked up. To go back when you were collecting, how did you locate the records, especially before the internet? In those days, you junked them. They were old 78s in uh, Goodwill stores, uh, places like that, yeah. stacks of them that you'd go down and go through. Or you'd find people that had old records in their attic. Yeah. Houses had attics yeah. in those days. So uh, the two, there were two funny guys from uh, down south who collected the old blues records. And they would go around to every shack in Alabama, Mississippi, uh, you name it, Georgia and knock on the door and said, do you have any old records? They put out an LP of uh, lady blues singers, but they they went all over the South knocking on doors and and getting records. A lot of people say, well, no, that's, my husband really loves those records. And they said, well, if your husband ever dies, you just give us a call, here's my card. (laughs) But junking was the way you got old records in those days. Either either junking or trading and or getting from other collectors and that sort of thing. Of all of King Oliver's 
tunes, is there one that's just like the standout to you, the one that you love the most? I don't think so. I, 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 there's many that I do love. I, one thing that I, I am sentimental about, I guess, is uh, the, when Louis Armstrong was doing all those home recordings in his late life, mm-hmm. he made one where he put on the turntable an old Oliver tune called Tears. And it was one when he was a young player with Oliver. He took all those little breaks because those were all ensemble jazz and then there'd be little two-bar breaks in them. So Louis makes this record in his home in his old age, and he's he's put on the turntable the old Oliver record of Tears, Mm -hmm. and he plays along with the ensemble on it, and every time they come to his break on the record, he stops playing, so you just hear his playing on the record Uh of that break. And it's a a beautiful thing when you think about an old man who's had all that career in jazz, uh, capturing his memory in that way. My one time I got to touch something of King Oliver's. Uh, I was at one of these meetings and spent a day with uh, the guy that was a wonderful, wonderful trumpet player. He'd gotten in his old age so that he would kind of be in a catatonic state all day long, smoke one cigar at the end of the day, but he still could play just beautifully. And he had a mute that King Oliver had given him that was a little silver teardrop mute that dropped down in the bell of a coronet. And so I got to hold King Oliver's mute in my hand, so that that was a golden moment. As you were saying that uh, when you got into it, a lot of those guys were still alive, but they had been forgotten. Uh, Did you have any other interesting encounters with some of your heroes or just people in the jazz world that that you thought they were interesting encounters at the very least? Yeah, we had... uh, I I have a vivid memory of an afternoon with John Hammond. Oh, yeah. Uh, who talked about how, you know, he did a lot to get jazz uh, around with uh, Bessie Smith and uh, Billie Holiday and you name it. was a very interesting guy, went to Yale, cultivated man, hated his brother-in-law, Benny Goodman, and so he, he didn't have nice things to say about Benny. But we had him, we, we had, I spent another day with Ben Selvin, who was more of a, a businessman, running all those bands and things, and how he, he uh, had his little edge at the jazz thing. I think the funniest one we ever had was we had it in New York, uh, back when Times Square was kind of a rough place to be. And I get in the cab with my wife uh, and tell him where we're going. And the cab driver turns around and says, is that your wife you're taking to that hotel? <laughs> I said, yeah, yeah, and it is. So uh, off we go. And the, one of the guest artists we had uh, at that uh, convention in New York at that time was uh, a blues singer who made some pretty good records, Victoria Spivey. 
Oh, yeah. And, and when they asked her uh, if she'd come to this convention, she said, oh, yeah, I'd be happy to come to the convention. But when she thought she was supposed to come to the convention, she thought she should bring a bunch of prostitutes with her. So, so it turned into kind of a wild scene. Wow. Why did she think she should bring some prostitutes? Well, just I, that's what people, what men do at conventions, I guess, is what was oh, to get her, a little her, business. Her, her view of it, yeah. Richmond a lot uh, when they had the doing the Walk of Fame and there was when Thomas Dorsey was placed in the Walk of Fame uh, he had a number of relatives who came over for that ceremony and it was a very interesting thing because you know the, the jazz idea of Thomas Dorsey and the, and the gospel music are kind of twins but uh, with, a, with a break in the middle yeah. and uh, they were very interesting I said I've got a and I feel bad about this because I said, you know, I've got a record of Thomas Dorsey reminiscing about how he grew up and listening to the trains made him uh, interested in the blues and all this kind of stuff. He had this real deep voice and uh, interesting voice. I, I told those people I'd give them a copy of that record and then I lost their address or something. So, <laughs> so there's, there's a, a good deed never performed. Tell me about Nipper the dog. Well, all right. Uh, He does live in my home uh, full size. He's bigger than almost any dog I've ever seen. And for folks who don't know, Nipper was the dog that you see in the RCA. His master's voice. Yeah. Uh, So this this particular Nipper, who is as as big as a mastiff Mm -hmm. uh, and a beautiful replica of him, uh, was in the front window of a music store in Columbus back in the 20s. And I acquired it as an antique uh, along the way. I've got a goofy house in Dayton that has a stained glass window with King Oliver and Bessie Smith wow. and Ma Rainey and the rest of the, and Bix and the rest of the gang. But at any rate, the, the Nipper story is that I just acquired the thing and I was about to take it out of this antique shop and put it in my car when some guy comes running into the shop and says, you still got that dog? And the, the guy says, oh no, that guy over there just bought it. He's, he's leaving. He says, oh my God. We're doing this program at the Ohio Theater in downtown Columbus on Benjamin Franklin and the glass harmonica. That he invented. That he invented. And uh, we've got a glass harmonica and we want to talk about it. And then we thought, well, Nietzsche or somebody wrote an article saying the trouble with the glass harmonica is such a high-pitched sound that it uh, 
drives people crazy and kills dogs. <laughs> and we wanted to do a thing where we had this statue of Nipper by the glass harmonica as a, there's his master's voice and then another picture of him upside down dead underneath the glass <laughs> harmonica as what happens to a dog that listens to the glass harmonica. So the day I bought the thing I had to spend the afternoon in the Ohio theater holding the dog first listening to it and then second crawling under the glass harmonica with the dog upside down uh, dead. But it came back to life and he's been in my house ever since. He's doing okay. He's doing all right. All right. <laughs> oh, hello, Sam, don't give me Dr. Jack. He's got what I need, I say, has. Oh, when the world goes wrong and God goes through, he's the man that makes me get out of both my family. What are some other relics that you have? I live in a house that was built in 1854, and it was a double originally, and then by the 1930s it had turned into a grocery store, so they knocked the brick wall interior down, so the two front doors were just two door-sized windows uh, covered with uh, plywood. So I decided that's not anything, so I turned one of them into all my favorite jazz artists. And I've got this beautiful stained glass window the size of a door mm -hmm. uh, with King Oliver in the middle of it and Louie and Dix and Ma Rainey and Bessie Smith and uh, Jelly Roll Morton. Mm -hmm. So I, I got that to look at every day. And then when the Iron Curtain came down, I had a buddy who was over there thinking he could uh, get a business going and then found out you couldn't get any money out of the country. But, Russia. Were, but they found there were a lot of Russian artists uh, over there mm -hmm. who would make beautiful art for almost no dollars. Mm -hmm. so, what, would you like something? I said, yeah, I've always wanted a kind of a bronze little statue of King Oliver. Mm -hmm. So, well, get me a bunch of pictures of the guy and I'll send 75 bucks and I'll go over there and see what I can do. Mm -hmm. So for $75, I ended up with this beautiful bronze statue of King Oliver with his horn and his, on his knee. Great thing. Is there an artist that you feel got neglected and forgotten that you like to champion still? Uh, well, there, there are a lot of them because the recording industry was, was what it was. Mm -hmm. there, there's Punch Miller was, was the guy who got very bitter about how Louis Armstrong had a white manager and he didn't have a white manager and he could play as good as anybody, but he didn't get the chance to do all the recording. just didn't make very many records. In those days, uh, it was important for somebody to have a white manager if they really wanted to, to make a name for themselves. Yeah. 
and Louis was uh, fortunate in, in a number of things. Uh, <laughs> the most fortunate thing was he was built and made with uh, a skill that is just beyond belief even today. I mean, you, you think you listen to those records of Louis in the late twenties, and you try to think what those would have sounded to you if you had heard them for the first time, if we were back in, the, in that era. Now everybody's heard so much copy of, of all of that stuff that it, it lost some of the magic, but still you, you put those things on and they just, just blow your brains out. Uh, he had that advantage of natural talent, and then he had the advantage of King Oliver, who was a father figure to him, brought him up. He had the advantage of getting married to uh, a gal who uh, pushed him to to get in the limelight, to get away from the Oliver Band. To go Lil Harden. Lil Harden, yeah. And uh, so Lil got him off to Fletcher Henderson, and then he didn't like Fletcher Henderson's band very well, but he changed that band. I mean, listen to the Fletcher Henderson records before Louie, and it's just like any other dance band of the day. And after that, suddenly Coleman Hawkins takes fire, and the whole thing turns into a wonderful band. But uh, Louis never felt he fit in with those city guys. Mm -hmm. Comes back to Chicago, and then he gets the white manager. He gets the great Hot Five and Hot Seven records, the records with Earl Hines. You don't have a charmed life. There, there's a lot of chance to life, no matter how good you are. He's a nice guy too. I mean, oh, he, he seemed, seemed like yeah. he always remember people's names, and he oh, was yeah. grateful. And you know, some people have a chip on their shoulder or kind of angry. And yeah, yeah. And I'm sure he was done wrong. He talks about it in his autobiography. He got done wrong a lot, but he seemed to have a very graceful attitude towards it. He was a, a decent human being, a rare thing. Beautiful man, great artist. If you're still in a swinging mood, you might check out In the Corner, Back by the Woodpile, episode 290, where we talk with Bob Jacobson, the former president of the Star Jeanette Foundation. And then there's 119 with Dave Robinson, who has us down in his basement of treasures to talk jazz recordings, rare bottle caps, rarer woodpeckers, and piano rolls. In the Corner Back by the Woodpile is produced by A Closet, A Pocket, and A Suitcase. You can find this podcast on iTunes, podbean.com, Spotify, and Stitcher. If you would like to send us some love letters, you can email us at spuncounterguy at hotmail.com. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye.